overseas. Jackie is also leaving us. Um, this is her last Sunday at Calvary Chapel, and she's going to be heading up north back home to Yamba to work there. So um, I'm going to open in prayer, and why don't you join me as we uh, pray for Jackie and wish her well on her way. Heavenly Father, it's a good day, um, not just because Terry and Lindy and the family are back. Um, it's a good day because we're here in your house. It's a good day because um, of the liberty we have to sing about and to you, to open up this word and to learn your truth and to work out how it translates into our lives. For that, Father, we ask now that you would prepare our hearts, affection, and our minds' attention on what it is that you would have to say to us. And as we get into this word, Father, um, and what it has to say about our relationship with you, chiefly through prayer, we just ask now and pray for our sister Jackie, who's been faithfully uh, attending Calvary and, and Bible study these past few years. Go before her in her work. As we uh, prayed last week, it's always sad to see a, a friend and a sister go out. It's hard because we're going to miss the separation and the, the fellowship that we enjoy on a regular basis. But at the same time, Lord, um, despite the distance, we are all connected through your spirit as a body of believers and we know that you will go before her and that gives us comfort and encouragement. She knows your word, she has the Holy Spirit and for that Lord we are comfortable and secure saying goodbye, knowing that she's in your most loving and capable hands. And So just be with her, uh, it's gonna be exciting and hard. Um, just sustain her through that, give her friends, give her, give her a, a fellowship uh, and give her a sense of this is where I need to be. And we just yeah, leave her with you now. Amen. All right, well, again, welcome back to the Muns. It's uh, good to have you guys back. Yeah. And next week, I'm looking forward to getting back into Nehemiah. It's been 10 weeks now that we've been in James. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah, it has. It's been 10 long, hard, 10 challenging weeks, I think we'd all agree. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open them up now to our final section, James chapter 5. We're going to be looking from verse 13. Um, that's it, verse 13, all the way through to the end of the chapter, verse 20. So I'm going to dive right in for the sake of time. Uh, if you need to get out a bit earlier, I won't take offence, feel free to leave. <laughs> um, so let's get into it. James chapter 5, 13 to 20. As I read through this, try and, and notice the repeated theme. I may emphasise it, but let's go. See if you can work it out. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And if the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and if someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Did you pick it? Sorry, that's a little condescending. But it's pretty obvious what's in there, right? Every single verse from 13 to 18, minus the two final verses, 19 and 20, the epilogue, the, the outro, so to speak, every verse has that phrase, prayer or pray in one form or another. James is trying to get our attention. Verse 13, let him pray. Verse 14, let them pray. Verse 15, the prayer. Verse 16a, pray for one another. Verse 16b, prayer of a righteous man. Verse 18, and he prayed again. The repetition here is important. This is like them, we put it in bold, underline and italics in our emails. They do it in the Jewish culture by repeating. Pray, pray, pray. That is the author trying to get our attention here. Um, and I might just add as a footnote, it was a little bit disheartening as I studied for this, how many people teach these verses, 13 through 20, and they major on two verses. They give two verses all the press, and that is 13 and 14, and they major on the idea of healing. Absolutely, healing is here, and we're going to talk about that. But James' conclusion to his epistle that we've been studying now for 10 weeks the final test of our faith, if you will, is prayer. In fact, it would be a little arbitrary if it was to just end this outro with another word on healing. It's just kind of strange to leave that lingering uh, there on this notion of healing. So healing is here. We're going to talk about it. But the chief concern with James in this passage, by virtue of the repetition, um, is prayer. And by the way, this is not foreign to the new testament have you noticed that the epistles by and large always end with an exhortation on prayer uh, romans 15 1 thessalonians 5 ephesians 6 colossians 4 philippians 4 1 peter 4 to 5 it always ends on prayer this call to prayer and so in the words of peter it kind of makes sense when he says the end of all things is at hand therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers so after everything we've studied now for 10 weeks as hard hitting as this stuff has been the anvil hammer hitting the anvil kind of wake up reality checks that we've been going through this final test of prayer is unmistakable and it's quite fitting when you see how it kind of pulls all of the threads together and we'll look at that as we dive in i guess the thesis statement for today the posture of your prayer life reveals the posture of your christian life that's it you can go home <laughs> all right four things we're going to look at um, uh, a bit of an outline the constancy of prayer verse 13 the therapy of prayer verses 14 to 15 the fellowship of prayer verse 16a and finally the power of prayer 16b to 18 so let's look at the, and then we'll consider the uh, epilogue in, in our final time together. So let's just dive straight in. 
First of all, the constancy of prayer. Look here at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Just stop in there. You recall from last week that James is writing to these scattered Jewish believers. Uh, They're scattered uh, in what is called the diaspora, the, the dispersion, because of those various persecutions that we looked at from the book of Acts, that you had the, the, the persecutions under Saul, who later became Paul. That's when Stephen was stoned to death. Uh, and then you had, not long after that, um, the Herodian persecutions under Herod. And that's where you had James, the brother of John, not the James we're, we're reading here, but James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Uh, Peter was let loose in the night by an angel and went out and interrupted that prayer meeting as they were praying for him. Um, This is why they're scattered abroad, uh, and Acts makes that very clear. And last week we also talked about how um, the suffering and the persecution that they're going through, in the words of Paul, this present evil age, uh, we are in that same age today, between the cross and the crown, between the two reigns. Remember that farmer analogy we looked at last week? We are also living in this age, similar to the scattered Jewish believers here in the first century and James was telling us despite all the evil despite all the suffering that we're going to go through he says suffer long stay there stay there stay there that was that call to patience that test last week the test in your faith by patience but patiently waiting you remember that we looked at this last week again it it isn't a passive thing we're not sitting on our hands waiting for Jesus to come back that does give us hope knowing that our future is fixed but waiting has purpose and in the words of that one pastor um, patience is more about what you become while you wait and I thought that was profound because we actually have a purpose here we're working the fields the farmer analogy we're sweating we're blistered we're bloody but this has purpose it's called sanctification as Terry said earlier more like Christ today than yesterday more like him tomorrow than today we are growing as Christians that is the book of James so with all of that in mind we see here today Another way that we are to be active in our patience as we work the fields called life. And that is by prayer. And notice the constancy of prayer here in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. James says whether you're in the low pit of life, suffering, or whether you're, and by the way, that's like these Jewish scattered believers that he's writing to, or whether you're in the peak of life, things are going good. The lows, the highs, and everything in between, in all things, pray. Pray, 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 pray. The constant discipline of prayer, the constancy of prayer. Pray. That's the imperative. It's unmistakable. It's right here in the text. That's the instruction. That's what we are called to do as Christians. But what is prayer? Glad you asked. In its simplest form, prayer is communication with God. And that's not just a verbal communication. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.26, The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So prayer is this sort of deep, spiritual communication with God sure it involves talking absolutely but it's even 
more than that. It's this this groan, and I think you know you guys would probably know what I'm talking about. Well, that sorry, Paul's talking about because I can understand what he's saying. You know, there's sometimes you just like I don't even know what to say, but you just you got that qu- quiet corner, and you're just sitting there, and you're just like God help. <laughs> And that's that kind of groan, you know, that you don't even know how to verbalise. That's that and everything around it, this communication with God, that is what prayer is. It is the groans of our souls. But again, just like pretty much everything else in the book of James that we've studied so far, this is a hard instruction. Pray all the time. No excuse. Lows, highs, everything in between. Pray, 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 pray. Pray. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Pray. That's tough. That's hard. That's heavy. Why is it tough? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I'm sure you could think of many yourself from your own experience. The most obvious one to me, at least, and this is nothing new from what we've already discovered in the book of James, but the most obvious reason to me why this is tough is because when we are praying to God in that very act of prayer, we are actually denying ourselves and depending on God. Prayer effectively says i'm not god you are and i need you and that's why it's so hard because we've been saying over and over and over and over and over again in james the nucleus of sin is self you see that in the garden you see it today with what we're debating in politics the nucleus of sin is self and that is why prayer is a hard thing because it is the denial of self and the submission to one who we recognize we need god Prayer is an act of humble submission and dependence on God, which just grates against our old nature. Marriage is a good illustration of this. I've talked about my marriage a lot. Um, I feel naked. I don't have my wedding ring on today. And anyway, um, I remember the greatest struggle that I had in my first year of marriage. Oh, experienced me. I've been married for two and a half years. Um, <laughs> But just hear me out, all right. <laughs> um, the, the hardest thing that I've, I've that I noticed and I still struggle with, um, but particularly in those first twelve months, was losing my independence and recognizing that I need to be dependent on Julie. You know, this whole one flesh thing. It's not just me and her. It's us, and that was the hardest thing. And it still is a very hard thing for me. You know, trivial, ex- which aren't trivial. But an example of this would be. Spending money on something. Um, I bought something for 800 bucks when we got married. I didn't even tell her. I won't tell you what it was. Um, <laughs> but I spent a lot of money, and uh, it was on a hobby that Julie doesn't even like that I have. <laughs> Brad, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Dave, you know what I'm talking about. All right. Okay. Um, and so, and so, you know, that was one example of, you know, living depend- independently of Julie. Um, and all the way through to uh, how I spend my time, how I plan my week. Uh, there is a dependence there that, that we need to have on one another. And I've struggled to, uh, to loose myself of that. It's kind of like that with God. I don't know about you, but for me, prayer is hard because it just makes me feel so vulnerable. So weak, big, strong, testosterone man, David. It's like when I pray, I'm just sitting there picking petals going, he loves me, he's like, God, I need you, you know. But that's exactly what prayer is. It is humble submission and dependence on 
God. It is saying, I can't do this thing called life. I need you. I love that song we sang before. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Prayer is humble submission and dependence on God. The reason why it's hard is because it recognizes we aren't God. He is. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think all of you, if you're honest with yourselves, you would recognize this is the challenge with prayer. The constant discipline, highs, lows, everything in between is tough. I don't think I've shared this before. There's, um, when I was going through, um, Julie broke up with me in 2010 for good reason, and um, I, had, I, just, I just was heartbroken. We got married, it's all good. Um, but, you know, that time apart was necessary for me to grow up and get my act together. But I remember um, listening to a guy, Paul Washer, um, preacher, and he said, when was the last time you just went out into the wilderness, threw rocks at the sky, and demanded that God show himself to you? You know, when was this time, that the point is he was making, when was the last time you actually sought God to his face and were disciplined and intentional to just go be with God? And I was like, never. So I was like, I'm not going to pack food. I'll take a bottle of water and I'm going to hit the road and I want to drive far enough away that it's going to annoy me when I get there to turn around and drive back. So I drove three and a half hours in the wild wilderness of the Barrington Tops all by myself. And I got there, found this little reserve, sat down there, and I was just like, well, now what? <laughs> you know, I walked down to the Barrington River, and I was skipping stones. It was really cold, and kind of walked around, drank a bit of water. I had my Bible with me. I thought, I'll pray. I was like, this is so boring. <laughs> Reading parts of the Bible. I should pray, so I prayed. Repeated that for like six hours. Started to light a fire, and then I'm just like, what am I doing, you know? And then I was just started reading Ephesians and before I knew it I'd finished Ephesians and I was like whoa heavy and then I just flicked through the Psalms and I started reading some of the Psalms and I was like wow and then I look up and all of a sudden it's like 10 o'clock at night and the the fire's on and I was just like wow this is intense and then I just started praying I was like I don't know what to pray so I'm just going to pray through what I'm reading so I was praying through the text and then all of a sudden I realized I was praying and I was praying for like half an hour I was like I've never done that before that's just crazy to me Anyway, long story, and I was doing all of that, by the way. This is the cool part. Um, and I heard this stomping behind me when I was praying and bawling my eyes out and everything. And uh, I heard this stomping, and I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and then I, heard the, I felt this kind of cool thing on my neck, and I turned around, and there were three cows. Like, one of them was a bull <laughs> and two cows next to them, and they were just kind of in my face. And I was like, whoa. And they came around the other side of the fire, and one of them sat down, and the other one was trying to... I don't know, stick his nose in the fire or something. So I read to them um, first half of Romans <laughs> and then reminded them that they don't have a soul and this doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that to them. Um, anyway, look, I went home from that and I was like, that was a long day. It was like, I would drive home at like 1 or 2 a.m., right? It was a long day. It was good. Um, but I was just like, wow, you know, that's, that's, is that what getting close to God is like and I tell you what was amazing it wasn't so much that day God didn't rip open the skies and show himself or speak to me in a wind or anything like that he can do that but he didn't do that for me you know what was amazing was waking up the next day I slept in till 10 a.m and I got on my knees on next to my bed and I prayed and I felt familiar with God and it was not a chore it was natural it just happened and I just had a friend that I wanted to talk to the point is 
Prayer is tough, absolutely, but prayer at its core is about your relationship with God. And so the further you are in terms of your, your constant communication and your relationship with God, the harder prayer is going to be. Just like my relationship with my wife, if we are just two tracks on a railway line, if we aren't, you know, one flesh, of course my relationship with Julie is going to be tough. Of course it's going to be hard because we're just co we're just good housemates, you know? That's it. But if we're in this thing called marriage and we're working through it together, dependent on one another, then we will be working it out together and there will be familiarity and security. And that's key, security. You know, I don't... When you first start... When I first started flirting with Julie at college in 2008, um, I used to spray everything with cologne. I used to spend a lot of time in front of the mirror... I don't do that as much today. The reason is because we are familiar, we are secure, and I don't have to question how she feels about me. It's like that with God. When you spend deliberate, intentional time with him, you'll feel comfortable, you'll feel secure in his love for you, and this thing called prayer won't become a duty or a discipline, but a delight. deviated from my notes Terry I'm doing it you um, all right <laughs> okay well if our entire study then of James what has it been it's been this testing of our faith testing of our faith that's test up test up to test these boys that have gone before me these guys they have been teaching you through all of these different tests and me through the last couple of weeks test of faith test of faith all these different tests But what is it all about? It's about our Christian living. But what is it all about? It's testing our faith as Christians, testing our works, testing our speech, wisdom, testing our worldliness, testing our faith not to speak evil, testing our faith by not submitting to the will of God, testing our faith by patience, and today testing our faith by prayer. But what is it that you and I as believers are striving for in all of these tests? What are we shooting for? What's the goal here? Why is James writing this letter to us? I think Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews puts it the best. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is what we are doing. We are running this thing called life, this race, this endurance thing called life. That is what we are doing as Christians. And as we've studied James, these hard, 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 hard truths, yes, they're hard, but they're wrapped up. If you think about it, James is wrapping this all up in his love and his burden for these scattered Jewish Christians because he cares about them on this race called life. That's why he's writing this, because these tests of faith, they are like the oxygen that keeps you going when you're running a triathlon, when you're running a marathon. If you can get advice on how to run and breathe more effectively, you're going to run better. James here is a five-chapter, you know, ten-week sermon series on how to run this thing called life well. And, and endure through thick and thin. Yes, it's a tough book, but please hear today that it's tender because there is a concern here for us. Practically speaking, 
Prayer is the sustaining power of faith. Practically speaking, prayer is the glue that holds all of these different faith tests together. That's why I love that he ends with it. Practically speaking, prayer is the posture of the Christian life. And in the bold and blunt words of one pastor, and I want to affirm this as strongly as I can, and I'm putting myself in the pew right now, what you are in prayer is what you are as a Christian. It is that simple. As the great evangelist Lennon Ravenhill once wrote, this is a profound book, you should put it on your bookshelf, um, Why Revival Tarries. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. He goes on, Poverty stricken as the church is today in many things, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers, many players and payers, few prayers, many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. Failing here in the place of prayer, we fail everywhere. So do you hear what James is saying this morning? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. The constancy of prayer through all the lows, the highs, and everything in between is because part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, a Christ one, is to be in relationship with him. Constant communication is fundamental to any relationship. I was just making that point before about my marriage. And it's fundamental in your relationship with God. We must spend time with him. That's why Paul wrote, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Obviously, that doesn't mean you have to walk around with your head bowed and your eyes closed all the time. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the posture of continued dependence and submission to God and his will for your life. To the Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. To the Colossians, continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. To the Ephesians, praying always with all prayer and supplication in spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. To the Romans, continue steadfastly in prayer. To the Corinthians, what is the conclusion then? I pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. I will continue to sing with the spirit and I will also continue to sing with understanding. Over and over and over and over and over again, pray, 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 pray. The secret of praying is praying in secret. A sinning man will stop praying and a praying man will stop sinning. The constancy of prayer is a hallmark of the Christian life. That's point one. Let's uh, turn now to verses 14 and 15 and look at the therapy of prayer. This one will be the longest and then the next two will be short. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now there's quite a bit in here, a lot in fact. I found this hard to work through in one week and very hard to try and talk to you about in less than an hour. But let's try and work through this point by point and just break it down. First of all, look at what James says here. 
Is anyone among you sick? Now, I thought long and hard about what this is. What does this mean? What does he mean by sickness? What is he talking about? Well, as the dictum goes, if the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. Is anyone among you sick? What does he mean? He means if anyone among you is sick. Now, by default, we all tend to think physical sickness. Is he talking about that? Absolutely. But is he only talking about that? No. Sickness is holistic. We talk of mental sickness, emotional sickness, spiritual sickness, physical sickness. Think holistically here. It's not just restricted to the physical. The word here literally means to be without strength. And you and I use the word like this all the time. We talk about our health, not just with respect to my cough or whatever. And when you actually think about the context here, Uh, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we looked at this in haste last week. Uh, That was detailing the persecution that these scattered believers were receiving at the hands of these rich. And so James indicts the rich, and then he moves on in uh, verse 7, and he starts encouraging these scattered believers, exhorting them to be patient amongst their persecutions. And so when we read about sickness here, in the context, the the context is persecution. And that doesn't just mean physical. It, it, it implies it. They were being murdered. We saw that in verses 1 to 6. They were being beaten and bloodied. But it's not only that. It's also talking about their spiritual well-being, their emotional, mental, and everything. So it's, it's holistic here. So is anyone among you sick? Think holistically. Secondly, James says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let's look at that aspect of calling. Notice that this is the responsibility of the one who is sick. They are to raise their hand and say, I am ill. Now, that kind of seems obvious, right? Why why am I harping on that? Because sometimes people can feel jaded and unloved because nobody cares for them. uh, And they're at home and they're ill or whatever, but they haven't told anyone. You know, make yourself known. That's hard to do because that requires, again, submission and um, humility to acknowledge a weakness in some area whatever it is but make yourself known let him call this is the onus on the individual who is ill let him call thirdly james says is anyone among you sick let him call for who the elders of the church well i'm happy to say i have in my phone here the mobile numbers of james mick eugene paul and terry so if you want to have their digits come up afterwards and i'll give them to you so you can contact them on speed dial Um, the elders of the church it's interesting that he says um, we had a call upon the local church not a miracle worker who may have a gifting who happens to come to Newcastle or whatever the context for healing in the church age post Acts chapter 2 is the local church If you're sick in any of the ways we've just talked about, this holistic sense of sickness, call on these men to pray for you. Talk to them. I know some of you do, and I know I do. Talk to them after the service. Ring them up. Go out for coffee, whatever it is you need to do. This isn't an either-or, by the way. He's not saying if you're sick that you can't go to a doctor 
that you can't go to a psychologist or a counsellor or anything like that. That's not the point he's making here. And, uh, you know, just chatting with Terry before this talk, he was just helpfully and thankfully reminding me that God has graced us with the gift of medicine. And by going to a doctor, you are stepping into another provision of God's grace. The point isn't to deny everything and go to your elder to get heart surgery. I mean, that's ludicrous. That's not what we're talking about here. Holistically, come to the elders, chat, pray. And that's not because they're uniquely spiritual. You remember, we talked about sectioning the church vertically. That's garbage. They have a functional role here in the context of the local church community for the purpose of leadership and headship. And they are tried, tested, and proven godly men. That's why they have that function. And so by going to the elder, you're not tapping into some special channel to God or anything like that. You're simply talking with somebody who has been proven to be wise and godly in their counsel. So it is a, a trustworthy context with which you can lay bare your sickness. That's why we have elders, one reason why we have elders. Fourthly, James says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What exactly does this mean, anointing with oil? Well, there are lots of different ways that we uh, can interpret this text. I don't have time to go through them all. Um, two main ones. Some see this as referring to uh, a ceremonial or religious act. Um, certainly we see that in the Old Testament uh, covenant where oil was used for religious and ceremonial purposes. And so some people take this now in James 5 and they see it as mandating the use of oil in this era, this New Testament, New uh, church age era that we all live in and that's okay but for me uh, I don't see it that way and and my reasons are and I'm happy to chat about this afterwards if you'd like uh, but my reasons are primarily because of what the oil is always symbolizing namely the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament context it symbolized that and in the New Testament it's made explicitly clear uh, 1 John 2 20 you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. So all throughout the, the Bible, oil has this symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit. Now that's fine. So why not, you know, we, we have communion um, to, that's a symbol that points us back to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Um, so if we do that, why don't we do the oil then if it's a symbolic thing that points us back to the role of the Holy Spirit? Fantastic question. Um, and you may disagree with me on this, that's okay. But for me, that is explicitly commanded. As long as you mean to do this in remembrance of me. There is no such explicit command in the New Testament to um, use oil in that particular way. So that to me is a big difference. But... When you actually break down, and I know we're not all scholars, I'm not a Greek scholar or anything like that, um, but in prep, you know, we, we look at these things because it's important that we understand it, given the language difference here in the English. But the word here used for anointing is actually fundamentally a completely different word than the anointing that you saw in ceremonial or religious purposes. The word here has nothing to do or no... Um, concept at all of any sort of religious or spiritual thing here it's purely physical it means to crush and rub oil olive oil over people that's all it means 
It's so. My take on this then is that the use of oil that James is talking about is for the purposes of physical therapy. For refreshing. Because that's in the first century, that's how they used oil. And you can back this up by looking at Luke and by looking at Matthew, how they greeted guests in their home and they bathed them in oil because of the therapeutic, refreshing, uh, and some of us use oil like this today, use that oil had in a first century context. Luke 7, Matthew 6. Now, I don't want to get sidelined here by talking about, you know, hermeneutics and rules for interpretation and everything, but this is just an important point if you want to footnote it. Descriptive is not necessarily prescriptive. Just because something is described in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that it is prescribed for all people. You need to look at the intent and the context within which something was described to determine whether or not it's now prescribed. Okay? So, can I just make a, a point then? If we're to interpret, from my point of view, if we're to interpret the oil as being used, uh, you know, every time somebody wants healing or, or whatever like that, then if there's any rule in the process of interpreting that is primary, it is consistency. And so my next question then would be, why aren't we all greeting each other with a holy kiss? Romans 16, 16. Why aren't we all literally washing each other's feet? John 13, 14. Why aren't we praying at certain fixed hours? Acts 3, 1. Shouldn't every woman here right now today be wearing a head covering? 1 Corinthians 11, 5. Shouldn't we all be meeting in our homes for church? Colossians 4, 15. I could go on and on and on and on and on, guys. Here's the point. When it comes to biblical interpretation, we must distinguish between the principle and the symbol and work out how that transfers to us today. This is the process or the art of interpretation called hermeneutics. It's complex. That's why people go to Bible college. What is the principle here that James is talking about with oil? From my take, the principle is... Um, the refreshing and therapy that comes chiefly through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Does the principle translate today? Absolutely. What is the symbol? Oil. Does that principle translate to today? Not necessarily. I mean, there's no issue if you do do this, by the way. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's not necessary. Nowhere is it explicitly commanded that I can see, unlike the Lord's table. So from my take, and again, um, totally have no issues if there's disagreement on this, but from my take, there is no moral implications or anything like that for not employing the use of oil in the context of healing, as James 5 talks about. I think that is a historical, contextual thing. I don't know, does that, I don't know if that's helpful. Okay. So the take-home principle here, and this is going to move us on now, is the, the principle of refreshing and therapy, not the element of the oil. Uh, and I know of no better way for elders and Terry, if you go chat with them, to refresh you than to pray for you, than to minister the word to you and offer you godly counsel. Notice finally that this is all done in the name of the Lord. That right there just defangs any notion that there is something special about Terry or the elders or the oil. It is all about God. This is done in his name. There is no other thing that can claim divine status. 
There is nothing. Glory and honour are due to God and God alone. He is, after all, the object of our faith. Let's move on. James uh, 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins. He will be forgiven. Now, this is where it can really get tricky. Is this text promising that a faithful person will heal, that if you have enough faith, that you will be healed of your sickness? If it is, then we've got a problem because truly many people that claim to have faith have prayed such prayers and died in their sickness. What is James saying? Well, first of all, what is the prayer of faith? That seems like the most obvious question we need to ask, right? That's the key question. What is faith? We looked at this the other week. What is faith? To answer what is the prayer of faith, what is faith? We looked at this the other week. Faith is a virtuous commitment to belief and trust in something you know to be true. Faith has a corresponding object. I have faith in my wife means I have faith in Julie. I have faith in a check means I have faith that there is money in the bank for when I claim that. When I say I have faith in God, it means that the object of my faith is Christ's atoning work for me on the cross. We don't have faith in faith. And we talked about the, the, the massive misconceptions people have on, on faith. Faith is a virtuous, covenantal commitment in something that we know and believe to be true, and there are good reasons for it. That is faith. So, when it comes to this passage here now, what is the prayer of faith? Simply, it is the prayer of one that has that virtuous covenant commitment and belief in God. And his will for our lives, mind you, because we talked about that um, at the end of chapter 4 in James. By the way, James has already described what the opposite of a, a faithful prayer looks like. And he did that in James 1, 6-7. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That's the opposite of a faithful prayer. And it's doubt, a lack of belief and trust in the personal work of Christ for our lives. So when James says the prayer of faith, the prayer of one who has this commitment and covenantal relationship with God will save the sick, that then begs the question, what does he mean by save? Does he just mean physical healing? Or if we have enough faith that we will be healed every time, and I've heard that from pulpits and it is perverse. Let's consider the context here. Remember last week, James in verse 1 through 6 indicted those rich. He indicted them, condemned them for defrauding the wages and murdering those of the faithful. So James writes, be patient, suffer long, stay there like the farmer strengthens your hearts, brothers and sisters, don't grumble, be like the prophets, be like Job, endure, push on, stay there, stay there. If anyone is suffering, let him Pray, that is what we just moved into today. The context for this statement is persecution, suffering, martyrdom. And if that makes you weak, if that makes you um, weary, then go to the elders, confess your sins and pray. The prayer of the faith will save the sick. Again, this is holistic. The word uh, for sick here literally means to be wearied and tired and fatigued. It has this idea of being weary of the soul. 
And that Hebrew metaphor, Hebrews 12 metaphor of running this race with perseverance, the word is the same Greek word is actually used there to describe Jesus when it says, Hebrews 12, 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So there it is. The point here then, to wrap all this up and tie it together, friends, James is not guaranteeing that the prayer of faith will necessarily give you physical healing. It may, but it doesn't have to. That's not what James, he's not guaranteeing you cure of cancer. And if you don't get it when you've been prayed for, then there's an issue with your spirituality or your faith. That's not what he's saying. And if we want to press that, which many people do, that's why I'm beating this drum, is then we make God out to be a liar because truly many faithful saints have prayed such a prayer only to die in their disease. In fact, I have a friend right now in Sydney, a mate's dad, who's racked with cancer. If he's still alive, I don't know, I haven't checked in the past week. And he's content. He's whole and he's okay. That is what this is talking about. He's been saved holistically, not just of his cancer, and that's okay. That's what James means when he says the prayer of faith will save the sick. He's captured. Really, we've just come full circle then. This idea goes right back to what we were saying before about prayer. Prayer is not an ask and receive issue. God, I ask you for this, that you may give me that. Prayer is fundamentally about your relationship with God. And that's why it's, it's really sad, and I'm guilty of this so much, of thinking that prayer is just this ask, receive, ask, receive, you know, that that's the purpose of prayer, to get what we need. And I've had friends tell me, write me a letter. I've got a letter in my inbox from a mate who said one of the main reasons why he threw away Christianity was because prayer never, quote, worked for him. But what was he expecting it to, to do? Our society is cursed with superficiality in our popcorn microwave, need it now culture. We think like that. I need this. God, give it to me. You didn't, you don't exist. And again, I hope you know that I'm all, everything I say is because I know this about myself. That's the only reason I can think of this stuff to share with you. So I'm putting myself in that microwave popcorn machine right now, okay? God is not our cosmic servant and to think that he is reduces him lower than us because he answers our questions and that's it. He does not serve us. We serve him God is not our cosmic, cosmic servant. Like this tap that we can just go to for our own satisfaction. The fall broke our relationship with God. Jesus restored our relationship with God. Prayer is the channel through which we sustain our relationship with God by his grace. Prayer is a grace from God. It is gracious. So again, hear me on this, underline it, whatever you need to do, write it on your hand. The primary purpose of prayer is not found in the result. It is found in the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. 
like my relationship with my wife, for it to be any kind of relationship at all, there has to be communication. That is what prayer is. God has written, by the way, a love letter to you, and this particular version has it at, I don't know, a couple of thousand pages long. Just under a thousand. So you've got a big, long love letter here you can read. It's called the Bible. And once you read it, you'll need to keep on reading it because it is inexhaustive. Prayer is our communication with God. He's spoken to us and we in turn respond and speak to him. Therapy comes by communication. I think everyone here would agree that therapy comes by communication. That's what people do when they have marriage counselling is they talk. They put things out on the table. That's what Julie and I do when we're trying to work through issues. We have to put it on the table and we need to talk. Prayer is communication with God and it is therapeutic for that purpose because we are communicating with our God and our Saviour. He does not need our prayers, by the way. We need our prayers. He desires that we pray because he knows how much we need our prayers. He's not pining for you to talk to him. He wants you to for your sake. That's why we have prayer. So you see, we've got to move away from reducing prayer down to this ask, receive idea. Of course, that's a part of it. Jesus did say, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But when did he say that? Sermon on the Mount, right? But in what context? He says, Matthew 6, first, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice Jesus first mentions God's character. He then mentions God's will. And after those pronouncements, he then mentions his requests. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Before then bookending that whole prayer with the sovereignty of God in the statement, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You see, Jesus placed the prayer request in the context of God's authority, God's character, God's promises, God's will and God's sovereignty. You've got to recognize the foundation upon which the walls stand and the context of prayer and requests belong in there underneath the governing authority of who God is, what his will is and his sovereignty. And so when we pray and it's not answered, we go, that's okay because God is authoritative over my life. God has a will for my life and God is sovereign. And by the way, that's why God doesn't always answer our prayer with a yes, and thank God for that. Can you imagine if he said yes to all of our prayers? It would be messed up. We do not know what's best for us. God does. John the Baptist's friends prayed for him to be released from prison, and he was decapitated. Paul's friends prayed for him to be released from prison, and while they were still having their prayer meeting, he knocks on their door. And they didn't believe it was him, they a bit frightened and eventually he convinced them and they let him in these varied answers may appear arbitrary to you and I but not to God he knows what's good according to his sovereign knowledge omniscience and will we do not have the mind of God he who searches the hearts knows the mind of of the spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose and that may include cancer so again 
The therapy of prayer is not that it removes the problem. The therapy of prayer is the relationship that we have with God. It may remove the problem, but not always. And that's okay because the secret things belong to the Lord. I was so touched and nearly, nearly bawled my eyes out when I read this this week. A quote um, by, in one of his books, Cries of the Heart, Ravi Zacharias writes this, God doesn't respond because someone opens up some new insights for him. No. In persistent, fervent prayer, God prepares the soil of one's heart to make room for the seed of his answer from which will flower an alignment with his will. When the seed meets the soil and the season is right, the bloom touches heaven. And you know what? When I'm sitting around that fire out there in the middle of the Barrington's all cold by myself, I flick through the Psalms and I read that Psalm 34, I can't remember. Um, draw near to God and who will give you the desires of your heart. And I was like, yes, I'll draw near to God and get my Julie back. And then I just thought about that, prayed about it. And as I was praying, I was like, you know what? This has nothing to do with Julie. And this has everything to do with God. As I draw near to him, he will give me the desires of his heart. But when I draw near to him, my desires will turn into his desires. And in that context, I'll draw near to him. My desires won't necessarily be for Julie. That will be for God first. The prayer of the faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And, J and James continues here. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What is the central aspect of our relationship with God? If prayer is all about relationship, what is the central aspect of our relationship with God? It is the forgiveness of sins. That is how the holy can be reconciled with the unholy. That is how the black can be washed white. Thank you, Jesus. He has purged us clean, whiter than snow, created in us a new heart renewed a steadfast spirit within us for in him dwells all the fullness of the godhead bodily you are complete in him colossians 2 yea even if you are racked with disease broken in depression or suffering in the spirit friend you are complete in him bless the lord O my soul who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfies your mouth with good things so that you, your youth is renewed like the eagles the lord will raise you up prayer has wings to lift you above the sickness in the knowledge and security of your relationship with god your eternal destiny is fixed the moments here and now if you and i to choose and select and may we always choose that which is in the will of god relationship with god is the therapy of prayer the therapy of prayer is found in the relationship of god all right, let's move on through these. My time is gone, but I'm just going to have to crank the gears. The fellowship of prayer, verse 16a. Um, confess your trespasses with one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, this idea of confession, it's implied by going to the elders and talking to them to begin with. Uh, have the Lord raise you up and your sins forgiven. But now James switches from the elders to you and I here, one another, local members of the church. It's not just the elders that we go to, that we're encouraged to go to, but we're encouraged to go to one another for the same kind of uplifting, holistic healing that James is talking about. So why is it that we here at Calvary Chapel, um, or Christians in general, why do we uh, call our hanging around together in a collection fellowship? Why do we use that word? What is a fellowship? 
A fellowship is uh, an organization of people who are united by virtue of their common value. What is our common value as Christians? Christ and his work in our lives. That is what a fellowship is then, and we are all here this morning recognizing our need for the person and work of Jesus Christ. We recognize that individually for ourselves, and that is why we are constant in our prayer and find therapy in the relationship of our prayer life. But now also James is moving us to the next step, horizontally with one another, because we recognize that in our neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Vertical, your relationship with God. Hinged on that, as we talked about, is the horizontal expression, namely, love your neighbor as as yourself. You cannot say you love your neighbor if you don't love... You cannot say you love God if you don't love your neighbor. Okay. That's why we here as a church must be open. That's why we have fellowship. That's why we have accountability. That's why we talk about this kind of stuff. It's not because we're interested and nosy and want to get into each other's lives. It's because we recognize the need of fellowship in a world that is not that does not have common values like the church so let me ask you right now and this is maybe challenging for some do you have people in your life that you can get on the phone with call talk to ask out for a coffee I need to talk about something do you have such friends that you can just get on the phone with but by the grace of God in giving me such mates, and I was just talking to one this week. I would not be here preaching right now, I'll tell you that. Uh, If this comes across as sexist or stereotyping, then um, you'll get over it. Um, (laughs) But I think, generally speaking, women find confessing with one another easier than men. Generally speaking, of course, there are exceptions. But generally speaking, from my observation, that is the case. Who am I to make such an anti-cultural statement? Uh, well, I was born of a woman. Um, I was actually the first male on my mother's side in 105 years, so it's just females. Um, I was raised as the youngest and only brother of three sisters. I have now married a lovely lady who, interestingly enough, only has sisters, no brothers. So there's my CV for making such a rash, <laughs> uncultural statement. But, uh, but you know, just it's, that's my observation. And I think, you know, if we can put aside the insecurities of our culture today and just acknowledge that, I think most of us would agree. If you talk to a, a lady and ask her how life is going, um, usually they start to talk about their family, their kids, how things are going. Talk to a bloke. And he'll tell you about his job. Talk to me and I'll tell you about what I've been studying. I work too, but you wouldn't know it. Um, in fact, poor old Dirks and, and Brad have had eight hours worth of driving on the weekend with me and they know all about, I'll just talk about what I'm interested in. But um, I think it's because of this tendency, that, that this difference, I think typically that men can actually become more calloused, more insensitive, more unloving and unromantic than women. We can become more impersonal and hardened. And ultimately, over a long period of time, I think we men can become more 
lonely as a result. So can I just say man to man, if I asked you to name a guy that you have right now in your life on speed dial that you can talk to, that you can ask out for a coffee, and you couldn't name me one bloke to do that with, are you going to crash and burn? Maybe not now, maybe not in 10 years. Give it a while. We can't do this thing on our own. I'm not saying don't confide in your wife. Of course confide in your wife, but there are some conversations and some things that you need to talk to blokes about. Have mates. If you don't have such a friend, come talk to the elders. Come talk to us now after this church. Do not go home without chatting to us and we'll hook you up with somebody. We need to have these kind of brotherhood and I'm sorry, you know, I'm talking to the blokes here, not the women, but guys, we need to have this. As men in our household, we need to have this. And I'm saying this as a bloke because I know how my mind works. Uh, this, by the way, is why church is so important. That's why we fellowship here. Of course, your Christian status isn't determined by your church attendance, but that's why we come together. The road is narrow. Those on the road are few, but we come to church to encourage one another, men and women alike. So confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Fourthly and finally this morning, the power of prayer, 16b to 18. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months and he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit i don't know about you but um for me when somebody's like dave i'll be praying for you mate and i got that text this morning from a buddy of mine um back home who was pre- who's preaching this morning he knew i was preaching back in Gunnedah, and um and he says i'll be praying for you mate and i was like thanks appreciate that um but a lot of times when people say, I'll be praying for you, you know, whatever I'm going through, let's say I'm going through financial troubles or whatever, I'll be praying for you and Julie, David. I'm kind of like, thanks, but what I really want is money. <laughs> or, David, I'll pray that, you know, your croaky voice gets better. Thanks, but I just want to get better. I mean, thanks for your prayers, that's nice, but I just want to get better. Or, um, you know, fill in the blank. I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. Thanks. But what I really want is the result. Can you see how I'm already doing that in my own head? You know, I'm, I need to, even this morning, you know, be praying for your sermon. Thanks, but I just hope it goes well. <laughs> you know, and I hope I don't offend anyone. In other words, prayer is nice, but what I really want is the result. And you see how that just goes against everything we've just been talking about? Look at what James is saying here about the power of prayer. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's the statement. Prayer is powerful. Prayer accomplishes much. What's an example of that? Hmm. Thank you, James. You've given us an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a human being. He bled. He got tired. He hungered. He got angry. He got impatient. He was fearful. He was depressed. He had a nature just like you and me. Okay? He was a man. And yet, in spite of who he was, God raised him up in one of the worst times of Israel's history under the tyranny of a Phoenician princess named Jezebel, under the useless king of Israel named Ahab, when all the prophets of Baal were in power over the nation, God raised up Elijah, 
a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for the land for three and a half years. Drought has a way of getting people's attention because no rain equals no food. Hungry people equals angry people. It gets your attention. Would you ever be so bold to pray that about Australia? I'm serious. Would you ever pray a prayer like that? We are living in a debauched society now. Would you ever pray a prayer that would shake up this country? Oh, you sensational preacher, you. No, I'm serious. Would you do that? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, and Elijah is one example. The Bible is filled with example after example after example of powerful answers to prayer, and I don't have time, but I mean, even in my own family, you know, this isn't a YouTube clip, story of a story, Wikipedia, whatever. This is my own family written up in the Reader's Digest. You can come read it afterwards. This is my cousin. Julie and I caught up with him um, in June. Oh, sorry, the family. He wasn't home. Amazing story about the power of prayer crushed under the wheel of my uncle backing out in his truck as a less than two years old limp airlifted to hospital pelvis spinal injuries they had to drive two hours to the city in order to catch up with him imagine what that drive would be like and i'll just highlight you probably can't see i'll just highlighted all the mentionings of prayer in here and it is incredible you know she cried out repeatedly to god myron asked if he could pray once more before they got in the chopper we cried out to god we prayed and affirmed our faith in the god who says nothing is impossible for me people around the globe were praying for little fuzzy the church prayer chain prayed other churches prayed seven little boys gathered around the picnic table in the dorm's backyard to pray 1200 people paused in their prayer meeting to pray for fuzzy contacted uh, friends contacted their own prayer chains and continued this intercession our prayer was that god would gain the glory this medical these medical professionals here's the conclusion by the way they get to the hospital they open up the doors they walk in the end of the corridor there are all these doctors standing around a little stretcher little daniel jumps down fuzzy and he runs to his mum and dad and he hugs them The medical professionals at the Pediatric Trauma Centre recognised something very unusual and amazing had occurred. Now we could try and naturalise the heck out of that if you want to, that's fine, but the effective prayer of a righteous person avails much. I find that hard to relate to because I haven't seen anything like that. Maybe that's the same, maybe you have, maybe you're just amening that because you get it. But again, perhaps the power of God has been displayed in your life by him saying no. Listen to these profound words by Ravenhill, and I admit that I thought he was writing this to me, even though he wrote this before I was born. Spiritual adolescents say, I'll not go tonight. It's only a prayer meeting. It may be that Satan has little cause to fear most preaching, yet past experiences sting him to rally at his infernal army to fight against God's people praying. To be much for God, we must be much with God. Amen. That's what I've been yapping on about now for over time. <laughs> the, prayer of, the primary purpose of prayer is not found in the result, it's found in the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. 
In no other place does the posture of your Christian life reveal itself more than in this area of prayer. So let's now close. Having ministered to the sick, James writes these final two verses. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and if someone turns back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error, the error of his ways, will save a soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I don't have time to go through this now. That's your homework for the week to work out what that means, but it is a fantastic conclusion and application. So let me just make one little comment. This is a book written to Christians about Christian living. And in a sense, then, it is an evangelistic book for Christians. The word for sinner here is only ever used in the Bible to talk about non-believers. You see, James is not trying to divide the church with all of these harsh reality checks, all of these harsh truth tests, faith tests. His purpose is not to divide the church. His purpose is to define the church. To see who is of the fold, to separate the tares from the wheat. James has a pastor's heart. We cannot be apathetic about what we've studied here in the book of James for 10 weeks. So what better then way to finish our time together in the book of James than to pray? Let's do that now. Let's close in prayer.